Was ist Realität? Gibt es davon nur eine einzige? Oder existieren mehrere Realitäten nebeneinander? Uh, this is Rogue Philosopher. Uh, today we're going to be talking a bit more about Dark. Uh, okay, so this is the um, spoiler alert, uh, massive spoilers in this episode. Um, talking about Dark once again, and going to be more vague. I want to do a conceptual discussion of certain plot devices in Dark, or elements and aspects of Dark that draw from uh, philosophers. So today I'm going to go into a description of the time loop, the black holes, how they work how the two worlds interlocking with the third. Maybe I'll take a, a swat at how they work. I'll try to give that a go. So I assume we've all seen it. We're, we've seen the third season. We watched it all the way to the end. I know I did, like in a day. I watched it all. Um, but there are probably a lot of stuff I'm going to miss the third season I've only watched once through. Second one I've watched two or three times through, and then of course the first season, you know, watched that. But stuff makes more sense in the first season now that we've completed the third. But so in any case, Dark, the characters in Dark, I've done a little bit of discussion of the characters, something of their motivations, what makes them tick, why they've made the decisions they made, why they've made the decisions they made. I am testing this to make sure no moisture is coming through the bag and it doesn't look like any are. Okay. Um, so now another major device in the story, a major element in the geography, the background of the story, the travelers, the whole thing about the, the time, the time travel the portal in the cave, um, and the way the time loop works. So, what appears to be happening because of the thing is, is snarled up, the time loop is so, it's interwoven and snarled up, that there are events that occur in the future that determine exactly what happens in the past, thus making the past and the future linked to the point where there's no longer causation. That's why you have things uh, coming into coalescence out of nothing, inventing themselves up from nothing. Like Tannhaus's book is a pretty good example, the, uh, A Journey Through Time. A Journey Through Time, he never wrote it. Uh, Claudia brought it back to him in 1953 and he copied it. But it was yet it was his book, his name. He put in the labor to copy the printing and to write the book that he would publish at a later date as A Journey Through Time. So in effect, in defiance of ordinary time, cause, and effect, that book uh, created itself out of thin air because of the future influencing the past. The same for the uh, device that makes the black hole, uh, the bomb, whatever you want to call it, the bomb, the device, whatever. The blueprints for that um, came from actually all the way into the distant future, 2052, I think. And Claudia brought the blueprints back to Tannhaus to build the machine. Uh, but he didn't have all the components until 1986 in, in one timeline, in Adam's timeline. But he couldn't have built the machine without the blueprints. And he did nothing to acquire the blueprints or to imagine making the machine. Um, so it, it created itself from nothing. But the events in the past still affect the present and the future. The, the characters are traveling on a forward trajectory through the chronology of their own lives. They're aging, different stages of life, uh, youth, middle age, old age, and their lives and their phenomenological experience, in spite of going backwards, is always forwards. They're always traveling forward. So in that little bubble of that person's experience, uh, cause A spawned event B. 
etc. And so even though it's in defiance of everything else on the planet, as far as time travel, it still follows the basic rules of cause and effect. Yeah, the stuff that goes on in 1986, when they go back to 1953, what, what causes that from 1986, these are still in chronological order, in proper chrono chronology and structure. Now, there's, a, there's a big giant article on uh, the dark wiki that tries to untangle all the families, how they're connected, the different objects, their time trajectory, their arc, the whole thing. And it's a really convoluted cycle but that's the one thing that holds true is that even if it's going backwards through time or forward to the far future and back again, as far as that character's life is concerned, their life is still starting at the beginning and ending at the end. Um, and they may brush up against each other. They might meet themselves at another time or they, and poor Ulrich Nielsen's case, he meets his father when his father was still a child, you know, and runs the kind of the risk of the, the hellish risk of, wow, I, who, who am I? I'm my own grandfather or something like that. Noah, Noah, who um, actually is, is Charlotte, the police chief, is Charlotte's father. And Elizabeth is Charlotte's daughter. But Elizabeth is also Charlotte's mother. Because at a different time, Noah took up with her and they had a little girl. And... Uh, there's a few other characters that pop up like that in Dark. So it, it, it's, again, it's, it's, a, it's an effectless cause. It brought itself into being out of nothing. Uh, as far as everybody else who isn't caught in the time loop. But for those who are, y you can't really tell any longer why. What did the past do to make the present? But the present was uh, so-and-so's past or future. And it becomes a big, a big mess. It's a, it's entrapped in a circle. It's entrapped as if it were trapped in uh, the wheel of samsara. It keeps happening over and over and over again, because all the events keep happening exactly as they did before. They keep happening no matter how many times around they go. Um, <clears throat> it's a little bit like the concept of what I'm going to be talking about briefly in Nietzsche and uh, Mircea Iliade, the eternal recurrence. Now, this isn't an exhaustive discussion of it, obviously. I'm only going to do this with regard to how it affects the plot lines in Dark, <clears throat> because there are a number of thinkers who take on this idea in philosophy, different mathematicians. Of course, there's been belief in reincarnation for centuries. The, the Ouroboros is the infinity symbol. Uh, the Trinity Knot, what they talk about in the show, is the Trinity Knot, which is another form of... Uh, of uh, our Boros, in a sense, you have the three, the, and then the, the triqueta, the triquatra, uh, on the door, the emerald tablet. Um, so the time loops, there are several thinkers who discuss the time loops, other than Nietzsche. Uh, I know Kierkegaard did a little bit. Uh, um, the Pythagoreans kind of had something to do with reincarnation that they derive from, from India. They say Pythagoras traveled to India. Most of the Eastern religions have this concept embedded in them. And they have a multitude of interlocking wheels, like how Noah describes time in the 10th episode in the first season. Inter interlocking wheels. Um, in the East, samsara is something to be escaped from. It's something to be broken free of. It's, 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 a, it's a titanic imprisonment and entrapment. 
and so the soul or its energy or whatever it makes it up constitutes it is reborn again and again and again in the eternal recurrence in in dark the people are driven let's say they're driven by none other than their souls to repeat the same actions again and again and again and they have to do so because no matter what they try to do to break free of it their actions tend to cause the additional actions in the future for them in the past for everyone else uh, the past that is a structure for the guy's present was something he created at a future time and went back too far so the, t the time the it isn't the past that influences the future but the future also influences the past and Jonas described it in the bunker when uh, adult Jonas is talking to young Jonas right and uh, and Jonas replied that's insane well it, it totally is mm. and how did he put it he said we can't change what we do because we can't change what we want okay we can't change the desires that are deep inside us and you really can't you you it's too deep it's too integral to who you are how you define yourself where you stand and his the kids reaction was what my reaction or anybody else's reaction ought to be that's insane why would you do that you know d just change it just do something else how many times around they've gone is unknown it's implied at the end of the third season they've been around at thousands And while they have the book, where everything is written down in both worlds, they don't remember. I don't think they remember. I think each time they go around, but they're guided by the book that they wrote, and they have to write the book again, of course, each time. Why isn't this going? Okay. So you can't change what you do. now. There are a number of 20th century thinkers who address this topic also, but the ones I want to focus on primarily with regard to dark are the eternal recurrence of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. He talks about it in Thus Spoke Zarathustra and a bit in uh, The Joyful Science, The Daybreak, uh, can be translated as, as The Gay Science, The Joyful Science, uh, where Nietzsche talks about how everything that you do that you experience in your life, the pain, the joy, the triumph, the failure, all of it, if you were to relive it exactly the same each time, infinitely, you'd relive it endlessly and be grateful for it no matter how much it makes you suffer, no matter how horrible it might make you feel, because that is, is a sign of what's made you what you are. And I think for Nietzsche, that's also a sign of becoming the higher man, the, the overman, the superman. When you transcend your, your, your pain, and you're grateful for it. At one point, Zarathustra says, I love you, O eternity, I love you, eternity. Because he reveres that eternity. And Schopenhauer, of course, goes into this some as well because of his heavy Buddhist influence. Uh, but the way Nietzsche is drawing upon it, it's more of a, a description of the heaviness of the world. And once you realize that, that the case that you're living in, the case actually happens to be, that you're reliving you're entrapped in that cycle of events 
that is doomed to repeat itself over and over again exactly as it did before. That's how it repeats in dark. The historical events have to be manufactured every time the exact same way. The same words, the same actions, everything absolutely the same. And the thing that's interesting about dark is, is the writer is as good as his word. There isn't a single word out of place. There isn't a single word that's superfluous. A single blink of, of somebody's eyes, a gesture. It's absolutely perfect and it's economic. Everything needs to be there. Everything. Even one tiny thing were missing from the drama, the whole story would fall down. And he doesn't make that mistake. He's able to hold on to it. Now, I mentioned Mircea Iliade as well. Now, Emil Durkheim first talked about this in uh, the Elementary Forms of the Religious Life, where primitive peoples, they live on a seasonal cyclical calendar. They don't, and, and Iliade took this up also, they don't appear to have the same concept of time and of chronology as we have. Although there are esoteric aspects in the West of this, or in the philosophers, it's primarily an Eastern uh, model of, of life. It's an Eastern cosmology. It derives from Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, even Sikhism. And um, what drives, the, it's the underlying force that drives um, the striving in Eastern religions is the soul's attempt to escape samsara. Samsara is the wheel that you're trapped in, the wheel of time. You're trapped in this wheel no matter what else you do. And you live your lives and your karma of your past determines your present life and its circumstances. And the wheel, of course, is a giant cosmic wheel. It isn't just that you're being reborn over and over again and living the same life or different lives as the case may be. It's that you are <clears throat> living in a universe that is born, lives, and dies. Uh, I think Joseph Campbell, I heard this described, and I think it's out of the Upanishads, where he says, look, uh, uh, Vishnu opens his eyes, a universe is created. It exists. He closes his eyes, it ceases to exist. He opens his eyes, it comes into existence again. He closes them, it ceases to exist. And there's across millions of years of span of time into infinity, this has been going on over and over again, one universe after another the big, the cosmic cycle, and the small macrocosmic uh, reincarnative cycle of the soul, or of the karma. And for Nietzsche, that was a terrible burden. It, it was a crushing, devastating imprisonment that's visited upon you. I've got several books I want to consult. At some point, I'll go in more into depth into this, because um, it isn't going anywhere. It's one of the main plot drivers in, uh, in Dark. But the idea is, if you are to discover this, uh, and if you don't immediately collapse into gibbering insanity, <clears throat> then it has to be acknowledged that the state of affairs is a, is a terrible burden. It's a crippling weight to hold on your shoulders and to carry. It isn't just history repeating itself. It's that everything, and it isn't just similar situations, or even nearly identical situations in your life span that occur over and over. Everything in your life, it's replicated and reoccurs exactly over and over and over again. For Michia Iliade, <clears throat> who went along with Durkheim and said, primitive tribes, primitive peoples, uh, people closer to nature, Eastern uh, religions, the Eastern religions see it as an entrapment. The more uh, nature-based, animistic 
peoples in history, and even to a point in modern day, for them, there's a dichotomy between two spheres of, of conscious being, the sacred and the profane. Now, the, the profane, it's hard for us to tell the difference between sacred and profane because we don't have sacred much anymore. Profanity, anything that occurs that's normal physical waking bodily life, uh, or de, you know, sometimes in the modern world, Iliade talks about something that is desacralized. And the celebration of New Year's might be a good example of, of a secularized, formerly sacred cycle. In a lot of tribal societies, the rebirth of the year, the death and the rebirth of the year, really is being reborn. It really is starting over again. And when they create their rituals to go back to the beginning of time, the beginning of the universe, their traditions and their mythic traditions, they come from the heroes who created them uh, the first time round. For them, it's an escape from the crushing chronological profane time existence to a platonic state, a higher reality. So for them, it's refreshing to touch the sacred again. It recharges them. It gives their lives meaning. It fills them with a sense of, of truth, with bliss. For Mercia Iliade, the truth of reality is the higher, the cosmic time, the cosmic cycle, uh, the platonic heavens. And that is what is in fact real. Everything else is a shadow, like in, in Plato. The platonic higher realms, the circle repeats itself over and over again, and they're infinite. And they can't be damaged by the profane life down below. And when one is experiencing sac sacredness, that's where you're truly living. Your soul is truly connected to the upper, upper worlds. You're truly alive. Uh, the cosmology... The cosmology has the world as a reflection of the higher world. Even if the secular world is less real, it's an exact copy. And Iliade's example of this, one of them that I can remember off the top of my head, is the, um, the Babylonians. For them, the, the stars, the higher worlds, when they're into a, in a sacred communion with their gods, that's the truth, that's the reality. And the god realm is an exact replica or I should be more accurate and say that our world is an exact replica of the higher realm. Now, along with that, he also has a concept uh, called the Axis Mundi. So we've talked a little bit about uh, as above, so below, the microcosm, the macrocosm. I talked about it in um, White Christmas, in the cottage, in the snow, uh, a world inside a world, like a, like a Russian box. I don't know exactly what it's called. Like a... But when uh, sacred peoples... Through their ritual, the ritual is the doorway to this higher plane of existence. They're also living in proximity to the center of the earth, uh, the cosmic mountain, or in some of the Indian religions, the, native, the navel of the earth, uh, where the realms touch each other. And in most societies, the cosmology holds that there are three worlds. The heavenly realm, it's where the stars and the planets are, and the, the celestial spheres, the sun, the moon, that's the heavens. The profane world in which we live in the physical, and then the underworld. For sacred peoples uh, from older times, they have nostalgia for being disconnected from the sacred, and so everything that they do is sacralized. So even something as mundane as eating, 
I mean, for us, you're eating a sandwich at your lunch break. You're feeding your body. You're, you're, you're shoving dead material into your body and grinding it up, and it keeps you from dying. And it has really very little that makes it seem like it's something otherworldly or divine, has a higher presence. But for these uh, more Stone Age societies, everything that they did, if it wasn't sacred, had to be sacralized. Okay? So, at one point, Iliad is talking about how any activity that human beings can engage in, at one time or another, that activity was a ritual, or it was a sacred act that was in accordance with mimicking their, four, their ancestors, and repeating it exactly as their ancestors did it the first time. They're trying to do this so they can reconnect to the, to the higher world, the more pure, eternal world. Now, wow, I just completely lost my train of thought. That's remarkable. They're reconnecting to the um, renewal. It renews their consciousness. It adds substance to their lives that, that we don't... It's not just that we don't have it. It's that we don't really know it's gone, except every now and again there are tugs. You can't help but on every New Year's, you want to make those dumb resolutions. I hate New Year's resolutions. I never keep them. Almost I should break them on principle. But you always think, right? Well, this year I'm going to do better. I'm going to... I'm going to, uh, whatever, cut back on diet Coke or some damn thing. Or I'm going to walk more. Or I'll uh, write more letters to friends or something. You know, you, you, you put forth these resolutions because there's a sort of almost an instinctive, it's a buried memory almost, an instinctive wish to recreate the cosmos from the beginning, to start over again, to have a cosmic renewal. But it doesn't, it doesn't last long, which is why for a lot of these societies, they're constantly doing n different rituals across the span of the year and the seasons. And the center of their world, the cosmic mountain or the cosmic tree or the temple, connects these three worlds. The world tree in the shamanic traditions of uh, Siberia, uh, Yggdrasil, the, the world tree of the, the Norse, connects Asgard, Nirgard, and, and Hel. Um, that pole is symbolic of breaking the plane because it connects the sky, the ground, and below the ground in, into the depths. So it's almost like a, a, um, a pyramidal structure, a three-story tiered world. And in doing these rituals, you end up getting closer to the center, which the center is eternity, the center is reality. And usually you're doing something with the temple, or you're climbing the world tree, or you're uh, using the, in, your, in the teepee, they're using the smoke hole. Uh, it connects the heavenly realms with the earth. And again, the same concepts apply, macrocosm, microcosm. The cycles of the celestial spheres correspond with the seasons, correspond with the waters, how they, they flow into the rivers and streams, into the sea, and then they rise up, and they become the rain, and they fall again. It's circles within circles within circles. Now, we don't have that here in the West, and especially not in the Judeo-Christian West. And Iliade tends to suggest that it's because our, our, the, of the religions of the book, of Judaism. 
because it says there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and the world has a beginning, middle, and an end, and it ends in fire, and it's eschatology. It ends completely. There's no, there's no repeating in certain esoteric sects of Judaism or Kabbalah, uh, Hasidism, that they do believe in reincarnation, but it's within the framework of A, B, C, done. It's in that framework of the beginning of creation and the end of the world. And at the end of the world, everything, you know, is the Messiah comes, everyone is taken up into heaven, or they live in the Messiah's city, uh, and it's infinite, and all the pain goes away. So it's a somewhat different motif than, uh, than a more primitive society, based in their vegetative cults, or the renewal of life on the planet, the rebirth of the vegetables, the seasons. They renew themselves every year. Now in Dark, although he's drawing on some of these ideas, I think more so the philosopher than the religious scholar, it's a, sacred, it's a desacralized world. Even though the black hole is spooky, and the people belong to the Sigmundus uh, alchemical hermetic cult, and their religion is sort of a, a hybrid of hermeticism and other things, um, you don't, I don't think you encounter the sacred in the manner that Iliade describes it, and I don't think they cope quite with the eternal recurrence as Nietzsche intended it to be. The black hole and the wormhole is, is a trap for these characters, and their entanglement is, is a cause of massive suffering, and eventually it is so entangled that it brings about the final destruction and annihilation of the world and the death of everybody in it, effectively. It kills everyone. The portal isn't a sacred device. It's a time loop in a wormhole created by radioactivity. I guess the superheroes all have to be created from radiation or, you know, because radiation is kind of spooky. And then you have quantum particles and the CERN super collider or whatever the hell it is, you know, you tap into these things when you're dealing with nuclear power. You're splitting an atom. The building block of the universe is being forced to release the energy that holds it together in order to, you know, to do what for us? To turn a turbine in a bunch of hot water, spin it around, and pump power through the electrical lines so we can watch dark on Netflix, right? So <clears throat> the idea of harnessing lightning in order to do this. Because it literally is what they've done. They've trapped lightning in these wires and, and bzzz. But you couldn't... There are elements of it that are sacred for the characters in that they represent the ideal. But even, even if Noah and Adam and the others follow this strange mysticism, uh, the travelers, the, the triketa, the... Um, the sort of pseudo-mystical eschatology that Noah believes in, uh, where if they can actually invent the time machine, eventually he will take humanity from, as, as Noah puts it, from its childlike ways, and it will mature, and there'll be no more pain, no more suffering. <clears throat> it almost seems as though what's really going to be happening is humankind will be annihilated, and their suffering will, will end because dead people don't feel pain. It's sort of this strange, scary, you know, well, we'll have world peace if there's nobody left in the world kind of nonsense. And Noah's one of my favorite characters. I, I do love... Uh. So it doesn't... It. I don't think... Now, there is sacredness at times in Dark, 
and it becomes revealed a little bit by a little bit through the course of the three seasons. But the one thing that might be sacred indeed for the writers of Dark is, is people's love for each other. And that's the only thing that's really real in the end, and it really is sacred, is the love these people have towards one another. They, they, uh, and they're always trying and failing to have these love affairs, and they're, they're intertwined. These four families are intertwined and really can't be undone until you reach the third season where you're not dealing with one world with a time loop in it any longer. You're dealing with two worlds with time loops in them, neither one of which should exist. And in order to synthesize, see, to synthesize these first two worlds, which are the two worlds give birth to the one higher world, the third world, if you will, the real world, it's very Hegelian, also Kabbalistic. When you ascend the Kabbalistic tree in alchemical Kabbalah, the spheres on the tree are set at odds with one another. They're opposites. The Jungian opposites also might, might apply for this as well. For example, you'd, you'd have love and, uh, and uh, judgment, of mercy and judgment. And they're absolutely opposed. The one is... is, is Merciful, it gives you the benefit of the doubt. It's about loving kindness from, from the Godhead. The other is about severity, punishment, the divine retribution for your sin. But these two spheres, as you ascend the tree, they create or fill or demand that the light fills the third, the mediating sphere, sephirot, in the center. So, in the alchemical Kabbalistic tree of life, there's the left column, the right column, and the center. And it's the spheres in the center, tefirot, that mediate all these other spheres and balance them <clears throat> to the point where it is the true reality. That third pillar is real. The rest are, are half-formed worlds diametrically opposed and at odds in conflict with one another. But it's the middle column that unites these two pairs of opposites. The same holds true in alchemical symbolism as well. And as an aside, this I want to do. I'm going to do an episode soon about an alchemical analysis of all three seasons of Dark. <clears throat> I'll be using the um, the woodcuts described by Adam McLean in the Rosarium Philosophorum because I think this is an alchemical play, and in in large part, a lot of the re the sources that we could get illumination about Dark from, he tells us. He said, read Goethe's Ariadne. Fantastic. Go get Ariadne. He says, you know, he talks about Nietzsche. He mentions the eternal recurrence of Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, he mentions even the, the Kybalion. I kind of take issue with him on that. But if you follow his little suggestions that he has characters making about stuff in the show, you'll find the idea that stands behind the plot, the structure of the plot. And it'll be able to help to help explicate what these things mean. And it's a gigantic hint when he starts talking about the Emerald Tablet, the Triketa, uh, the Kybalion. This is this is um, an alchemical drama. Now the way these these worlds intertwine, you need the time machine. You need what's in the cave, uh, and you need the bunker. So, remember, Axis Mundi connects the higher worlds to this world, to the underworld. The bunker is the Axis Mundi. 
around that is the location around which everything else turns it's it's the safest place in Winden so even during the the coming of World War three and all the destruction everyone in the bunker is going to survive which is how they survive the bunker is it's it's the the almost the temple that connects the worlds together and is not affected by them and it's also the center axis for traveling forward or backward through time but in order for the time machine the chair the ark to work in the bunker it has to be properly coordinated with the cave right below the bunker is the passageways uh, where one travels through time if you go through the cave and you use the powers of the cave so in order for the time device to work in the bunker it has to be in conjunction and powered by what's going on in the cave so when initially when Jonas opens that portal in the first season he's feeding the power to really energize the the black hole the wormhole and that's why there's so much power surging through the bunker that you can have young Helge and Jonas in the same space at the same moment in different times and then he's ejected all the way to 2052 and Helge from 1953 is dropped in 2019 or in, and then in 1986 and then he's, he's dropped back in 1954 after a few months Noah takes care of him for a few months it's the axis point it's the most central thing in dark around which everything else flows that would qualify that it can fit the 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 descriptive role I've, I've given for the sacred mountain the axis mundi it's the temple that connects the three worlds and it's also from the pole star everything revolves around the north star at the center of the earth everything else is moving but you and you know this is so because when people look up in the sky the pole star the north star uh, the, the procession of the equinoxes revolves circularly around the sky it takes an ungodly number of thousands of years to do so but it does procession of the equinoxes the, the stars and moon are circling in the midst of the night and there's the moving stars and the fixed stars usually the North Star is the one that's most stationary and everything else revolves around it as we go through our seasons so it's called the pole star and so when you're connecting these different realms as in the the Temple Mount the Al-Aqsa Mosque the Dome of the Rock it's it's almost like the, the the central axle of the turning wheel of the world that we can experience in a material metaphorical sort of way but he said there are wheels upon wheels within wheels within wheels and it's true uh, and in his story those wheels are spinning through a kind of a funhouse reflection uh, mirrored everything is mirrored Everything is reversed in Eva's world. It's, it's similar, but it's reversed as opposed to Adam's world. You have mirroring. It's like being in a, in a funhouse that distorts, but it mirrors. It's a mirror reflection as well, one side and the other. And it's the central, the mediating world, the third world, the world ultimately that, uh, that, that Martha and Jonas, or Adam and Eva, have to prevent from being destroyed there are events that bring about its destruction that it so it's even more convoluted
And now just to make things one one level higher of, of confluent of a uh, what is it? Uh, interconnected, intertwined. The bomb, the device, it doesn't matter where you are when you open up the device. The first time Jonas tried it, he was in the, he was in the cave. But they opened that device in his house also at the end of the second season. If you have the device and the cesium-137, then you can not only travel through time, but you can travel to the other worlds. If somebody from the other world is trying to use their device at the same time, and you switch places, and or you both go back to one world. Which is how they were able to build a bridge between Eva's world and Adam's world. The wormhole by itself won't take you to a parallel world. But the time portal that creates the artificial black hole certainly will. Now, there isn't a lot of cesium-137 in some of the years these characters end up trapped in. But there's plenty in the future, and both sides are fighting over the device, over the wormhole. Uh, and for a long, long time, both sides work together trying to build the, the device, to build the portal. Now, in the second season opening episode, we learn that Adam's tribe, his, his sect, in the world where Jonas became, adult Jonas became evil Adam, they're able to build this electrically driven portal, it's a device, so that even in 1921, before the cave was opened, uh, they can still travel on the time loop, at different points along the time loop. Now in 1953, they were just beginning to build the nuclear power plant, and it meets its destruction in 2020 because of all the nuclear waste, the explosions of the nuclear waste. And the idea with the energy in the, in, the, in the dark is that it's a breeder nuclear reactor. These things do exist. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And I'm not a nuclear engineer, so I'm going to screw this up. But any anybody out there from uh, Ukraine, if I have any listeners from the Ukraine or from... Uh, Kiev, Russia, who knows where. You know what I'm talking about. The the cesium-137 in the black hole generator, in the bomb, uh, for lack of a better word, they call it the device. It increases its own mass as it's used. But in a manner that I can't quite understand, it's also being used up. But for a period of time, it seems to increase its own mass. And that's a, that's a breeder nuclear reactor. The old-style nuclear reactor that blew itself to hell in Chernobyl, that, that where the meltdown occurred, which is 1986. So that even appears a bit in, in dark. You have, in the spring, you have the explosion of uh, Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And shortly thereafter, you have the accident in the Winden power plant, when Claudia is its, its, its head. So there's another nuclear device. That's why they were so desperate to hide. Chernobyl had already given people the creeps. Now, now we know in, in now in 2020, people are afraid of nuclear disasters, and rightly. Okay, I'm not going to say anybody's not. not. And, and we don't really know how severe Fukushima ultimately was. We don't know. They're still measuring. They, nobody has a clue yet. And it's been 11, 10 years since Fukushima, since that great earthquake. But Germany 
and France. They're, they're two continental European countries. They're both in the EU. They both took a different tack, a different tack on this. The Germans, as in dark, basically said nuclear power is unreliable, the accidents are too terrible, we can't run the risk of these disasters occurring to have cheap energy, we, we can use more renewable energy and we're going to decommission all these power plants for good and all. And France went the opposite direction. France said we can't afford to use alternative energy such that we could live without our nuclear power. We need more power and nuclear is the safest way that we can do this. And actually, really it is. It's, it's very safe. It's just that if there are disasters, they're so cataclysmic and the cost is so high. Germany elected to the prices too much to bear. We don't want to risk paying that price just to have cheap energy. The French said that risk is worth. It's worth having the cheaper energy in order to have, you know, more conveniences or whatever you want. And although the risk is, is, is very low, if the accidents happen, yes, they're calamitous, but they're so rare. And if we stay on top of things, we can build more nuclear power plants. Now, in the state of the world, the transition of the world now as it is, what it's turning into, I don't know. But until they've really perfected the alternative energies, right now, it's not worth it. Nuclear power is still the best. It's still the safest. It's still the most productive. It produces the most electricity. Yeah, and, and I mean, unless we have better solar panels, I, I'd be a little less supportive of nuclear power if we only had better alternative sources, but we don't. And they try to tell you that they do, it's a lie. It isn't true. It, it costs more energy. You have to expend more electric energy and burn more fossil fuels to build these giant wind turbines out in the middle of the water that kill all the seabirds and get gunked all up and don't produce half the power they're promised it takes more to build the damn things than if they'd never built them at all and left them alone. So why don't we just either improve the tech at some point soon or leave them the hell alone, build better nuclear power plants. You know, it's not the end of the world that we have to use nuclear energy. It's, it's, it doesn't pollute. Yes, the nuclear waste, it is true. It's, it's hard to store. It's unsafe for a very long time. But we can figure out ways to reutilize that. We can figure out ways to, to do something else with it. You know, and, there, and obviously there have to be better things to do than dump it in the ground and hope it doesn't leak. But at this point, you know, there, there are no, and it's not just, it's not addiction. Yes, over-reliant on fossil fuel. Yeah, we burned 100 million years worth of trees in 80. Yeah, it's not good, you know, and who wants to live in a, a polluted world? I sure as hell don't. But right now, until there's a better alternative, okay, solar panels aren't going to do it. Wind turbines aren't going to do it. We don't, we don't have yet. I know they're trying to build it, and I, I applaud their efforts, and I, I admire them. But until we have better alloys, until we have better material that can produce and store more electricity than what we've got now, to shut off all the nuclear power plants would, would impose a hardship on us that, let's face it, most of us couldn't endure today. It's impossible. We could never endure cutting back on our, on our lifestyle. Call it what you will. Yes, very, very decadent. I don't disagree. It is, it's very decadent. It's very destructive to the world. Um, but we're not yet at a point where we're stable enough in our societies or in our power needs. We can't afford to shut them down. We can't. And I think the French, the French are doing the right thing. They're building more power plants. Unfortunately, sometimes disasters can happen. Now, why they, Chris could probably tell me, more about this. 
why they would build Fukushima nuclear reactor, which was one of the most safest and most sophisticated reactors. It was no Chernobyl. It was a it was a nuclear power plant. Why they would build it on the Ring of Fire, a few miles away from the sea, when earthquakes and tsunamis happen all the time, I do not know. I, I cannot fathom. I mean, they had to have known, and they were willing to take the risk anyway. They had to have known that one day the risk, and, and, and they're facing some of this, you know, in Seattle. God help us if, if, if the, the big one really does hit. It's a nine point something. The scientists are saying it's, it's hundreds of years overdue. You know, and I'm not trying to fear monger. It's that's just what the scientists say. I mean, I've been hearing them say California is going to fall into the ocean since I was eight years old. It's a fact. On on the Ring of Fire, you have big earthquakes and you have correspondingly big tsunamis. The the East Asian tsunami. That's not the only one that's going to happen. Now, there may never be another quake that big in our lifetimes. But let's let's play a little memory game here. Two thousand four. East Asian tsunami, um, what maybe Chris knows the name of it more precisely. That's 2004. 2011, the gigantic quake that destroyed the, the Fukushima nuclear power plant because of the, of, the, of the, it wasn't even the earthquake that did the damage in the end, although it did some damage. It was the tsunami, the tsunami that, that did so much damage. That's only seven years. We had the big quake in Haiti in 2010. That's only 10 years. Last year we had that spooky, it, was a, it wasn't a very strong quake, but it was strong enough to rattle one of the other fault lines in California. Fortunately, it was way outside of major population centers, but the people who lived near it still had a terrifying experience. Earthquakes happen. Earthquakes happen. The 2000 quake in, in Seattle, um, off the Puget Sound, that was a pretty big earthquake too. The biggest earthquake, I think, if I remember correctly, 1961, 62, off the coast of Alaska, was it? A gigantic quake, and fortunately for us, most of Alaska is forest. And again, the, the destruction might have been pretty bad across the land and the forests, but it wasn't killing people because people hadn't built up the population in that area yet to be in the path of, of, the, of the waves, of the cosmic, of the quake. These things happen. I get it. And, and, and man, I was a kid when Chernobyl went up. I was, I was 13. I'm dating myself here and I don't really care. I was 13 when that Chernobyl power plant blew up. I was 13 years old and one of my biggest fears as a child was the idea of a nuclear war, of nuclear fallout, of nuclear radiation. Because um, you can't feel it as it's killing you. I mean, most things, even if they're scary, you know, but the idea of the radiation killing you and you wouldn't even know until you're, you're too sick to move. That, that was pretty terrifying for me growing up in that. And so I remember Chernobyl. It's scary when bad things happen at these power plants. Yeah, it, it is, it's scary. But I think, unless we want to live, go back into 19th century technology, for a little while longer, we should stay the course. We should continue to use nuclear power at, and, unless and until we reach the point where we have better replacements. Once you have better, more efficient replacements, okay, let's do something safer. Nukes are the safest we've ever had in the, on Earth, say, safer than fire, but when they go off, bad things happen. And so we want to totally eliminate that. If they can build solar panels and solar power plants that can, that can create more and more electricity 
by day, store it by night, run it by night. If they can build better alloys, better metals, you know, uh, better superconductors, whatever they have to do, better wind turbines, okay, great. But as it stands right now, nuclear and our oil, there's nothing that even remotely comes close to that. And people aren't going to want to devolve. Then nobody will agree to this. Um, I mean, but that's that's a long tangent, which I shouldn't have allowed myself to go on. I expect I'm sorry for that. Um, except that Winden's power plant is is the 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 omega, right? When Winden's power plant blows up, that's the end. That's the end. That's the apocalypse. It's the end of the world, and it kills nearly. It kills almost everybody except for those who are in the bunker, which is safe from the blast. It's a bunker. It's the Axis Mundi. It's the center of the world. When you're at the center, nothing can really touch you. Nothing can reach you. And so when these characters wrote out the, the nuclear bomb going off, uh, that place, for a number of reasons, would have been untouchable. But you were just above a small spinning black hole. You know? Um... But as I said, there's the underworld, there's our world, and there's the heavenly spheres, the celestial platonic spheres that are eternal and infinite. And in most esoteric cosmologies, you have something like that. The same in alchemy, uh, the same in Gnosis, Gnosticism, Kabbalistic, alchemical Kabbalistic uh, cosmologies as well. There's a lot of different ones. That's why I never really nail it down. Um, because there are a number of Kabbalistic and Sufi interpretations of, of cosmology. Um, but cyclical time is, is definitely a, uh, a major plot um, a major plot element in the story. So I haven't entirely explicated how the black hole works. The physics confused me a little bit, and it's speculative. But what ends up freeing these characters in the end is there's nothing they can do in their own timeline and it turns out there's nothing they can do in the alternate timeline they have to go to the the third realm the central axis the tifirot the sphere of tifirot uh in order to prevent an event that you don't even learn about till well into the third season but if they prevent that event because it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with someone else. And so they can't change their own destiny or their own path, or their own trajectory. I think perhaps, well, I think that's true, in, except for, I have to watch it again. The one Claudia was able to, to finally change something by changing her actions, but I think that's the only case where that worked. They had to go to a third realm to prevent the mess from beginning. Uh, and I was talking with Chris about this, and it's a little confusing to me, and maybe I don't quite have it right. But in order to prevent all of these disasters from being set in motion across time and across worlds, they need to save the lives of H.G. Tannhaus's uh, daughter-in-law and son. Because it's their loss that m makes Tannhaus become obsessed with time travel, with wanting to go back to try to prevent the loss of, in his grief, he's driven mad by grief, quite insane. And that's the missing link that Claudia finally is able to figure out 
Adam and Eva didn't know. Adult Jonas certainly didn't. Martha didn't. They, they, they would have had no reason to connect. He seemed he was a necessary cog in the events because he built the time machine and he wrote the book. You know. But it was his life that they should have been acting on, not their own lives. And of course, how, how can we see otherwise? We, we, we think we have free will and that we can go back and, you know, oh, if only we could have made better decisions. If I were to make those decisions again, it would change everything. You don't know that. Eternal recurrence suggests that one of the signs of supremacy over the self, of conquering the self, is that you no longer wish to do that. You regret nothing. You don't have that wistful feeling of, wow, what a, what a screw-up that was. If only I could fix it. No, you regret nothing. You, you stand in awe before the, the infinity of, of all things. A constant circle over and over again. Hmm. It's the lack of regret that demonstrates your enlightenment. You know, that, that, that is a, a yardstick one can use. To, to determine, well, how, how much maturer, more mature are you? Well, you're at a higher level of consciousness and a higher level of development such that you no longer regret even your mistakes and your pain. You're not driven mad by the pain to want to try to stop it. And you're not driven mad by regret to try to want to stop it. Uh, it's all just there and it's, you accept it and you, you almost embrace it. That's why it would drive people mad because um, of the gargantuan amount of weight. Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill over and over and over again. The, the Greeks, they knew how to make up afterlife stories that, that, that would fuck you up for all eternity. They knew how to punish. My God. You know, the Wheel of Fortune. Ariadne's uh, Labyrinth is from Greek, Greek mythology. Follow the red string. The thing that's really great about it, he is very kind to his audience. He is very the, the the director and the writer. They're very they're very kind. He's very kind to his audience because he tells you all of these references, all of them. Even anything I've said about Nietzsche, he could probably say better than me. Probably Iliade too. Uh, and there's a number of other thinkers who take this on. Uh, there's a, a, a mathematician from the 19th century. Uh, Jung has archetypes for the circle at the center. It's not quite the same. It's not. Uh, an eternal recurring uh, cycle or a sacred world that you return to to recharge, it represents balance, psychological balance. Of course, Jung was also an alchemist, so he drew from the Rosarium Philosophorum, which, which, depending on how well this episode goes, if Chris likes it or not, or what have you, the next one I want to do, I hope this has been a sufficient analysis of how the eternal recurrence plays out in dark, but I want to do another macrocosmic analysis of dark, an alchemical analysis of the stages of the development of the primary characters on their arc, okay, Noah, I mean not Noah, Martha, uh, Jonas, Adam, and Eva. Uh, I want to do a discussion on how the, the, the child, the adult, the elderly wise versions of these characters are the the procession of the the alchemical evolution of the elements gold silver sol and luna there are different stages of the alchemical work uh, as demonstrated by the woodcuts in the rosarium philosophorum that describe the arc of these characters in this story that's where 
uh, Yanya Frieze's alchemy is. It's there. It's not in the, 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 the bloody Kybalion, which, yeah, the information isn't unsound, but it's at a very simple level. Uh, I don't think all the stuff that they put in that book is even alchemical. I think it's blended with a lot of horrible early 20th century self-help crap. But he wants us to be thinking about alchemy and the stages of the great work and the stages of the breakdown of these different metals because you need to impregnate your alchemical retort with a, a little bit of, a, of the metal you want to create. And now see, then the alchemists believed that metal grows and it evolves from the earth, from the center of the earth, from the fire and the earth. Okay? And it, like you and me, like the plants, like everything else, has a, a span of development and it has stages along the way. For them, the, the primal matter, prima materia, will evolve through stages of its life cycle, like, like chrysalis in a cocoon, moth, you know, caterpillar to a butterfly. The metals grow and evolve in the earth, and the end point of their evolution, just as it is ours, is gold, is, is the sun, is, is the purity of, of, of the philosopher's stone. You also have the red, the cinnabar. Uh, you have different aspects of, of medicine from the alchemical elixir, the philosopher's stone infinite life, infinite health, infinite wisdom, etc. But the symbolic journey of the king and queen in the Rosarium Philosophorum, I also think the, the Book of Lamspring, but I'll have to check that out separately. I mean, it may not follow. Jung used it in uh, the psychology of the transference, but he didn't have all the woodcuts available to him that Adam McLean did in his analysis of the Rosarium Philosophorum. So I want to do that for the next episode. Uh, come on. Ow. And demonstrate the different behaviors of the characters, the plot changes, the reversals on their arc. Your writers are always talking about arcs. Arc is just a fancy way to say the span of your character's development from the beginning of the story to the end. How much different are they at the end of the story than they were when they initially began at the beginning? Now, all stories use that as a, as a, a stage. It, it mimics our own, the stages that we live in our lives. But Baron Boodor and Yatni Fries is being deliberately and specifically alchemical with Jonas and Martha. And it's very, very openly communicated to us that theirs is an al they are the alchemy, the great work. The transformations in those characters is the great work. And so I want to line up the different stages in the story and across, across all three seasons in accordance with the changes that occur in the, the characters of the, um, the, the sort of the great uh, work, the drama of the Rosarium Philosophorum. Uh, matter has to be broken down and reassembled and made to, to grow itself anew. That's why the alchemist uses fire. They use the fire to speed up their, their development. It's not done by the earth. When the alchemist is doing it, he's recreating the cosmos from the beginning all over again. That's why you talk about um, the macrocosm and the microcosm, and the big world and the little world, or the Kabbalistic alchemical tree. So that'll be next next time, alchemical analysis of dark. This uh, 
this is I think I've hit all the high points I wanted to hit as far as the initially discussing the uh, turnover currents. But I want to come back to this at a future date as well. Um, it wasn't a deliberate intent to give a full explication of um, of the eternal recurrence, but only to show that it's what's used in, in dark. Now the fact that the travelers are an alchemical secret society it adds a lot of it adds a lot of color to the drama and it makes sense. He's trying to do cutting edge steampunk style physics. And to build a time machine. Uh, and it's interspersed with various mysticisms. I'm sure if I look hard enough I'll find Meister Eckhart, uh, Heidegger, Hegel, Paracelsus. Uh, Gershom Sholem and Mircea Iliade. I'm sure this way it's in depth. I can go deeper with it, but for the moment, I think I'm on the page I want us to be as far as the description of the um, of the eternal recurrence. So. I'll be doing a, an analysis, an analysis of the character's development corresponding to the alchemical Rosarium falsiform. Thank you so much for listening. I'm blown away that you are. It's fantastic. I love Dark. I hope you do too and you've seen it. If this episode had spoilers, the next one is really going to have spoilers, big time. And uh, Sponsor for the Cheapskate Podcast, uh, the Esoteric Order of the Luciferian Lobster. I think they'll be okay with me this week. I'll have to make another episode so they don't get mad that I'm not making another episode. Don't want the Luciferian Lobsters pissed off at me. Hmm. Great, so that's, that's the discussion for now. That's all. Thanks so much for listening. And be well. Take care of yourselves. And uh, as always, it's, it's a delight. Was ist Realität? 